You are now tuned in to the Believe Network. Do you believe? You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey guys, as always, I appreciate you being here. I hope you're having a wonderful day or night, wherever you are and however you are listening. Our guest on the show today is awesome, Dr. Herman Taylor. He is the Director of Player Engagement and Education for the Football Players Health Study at Harvard University, a study in which I'm a participant. We're going to get into that and a ton of other topics that will be relevant to you, even if you weren't a football player. So Dr. Taylor, he's an endowed professor and director of the Cardiovascular Research Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine and a nationally recognized cardiologist with broad experience in invasive practice and research. He is also an adjunct professor of epidemiology for the Harvard School of Public Health. His current research predominantly focuses on preventative cardiology. Over the past decade, Taylor held the position of principal investigator and director of the landmark Jackson Heart Study. It's the largest community-based study of cardiovascular disease among African Americans. That was funded by the National Institute of Health, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. His extensive experience in epidemiological observation has led him to a deeper appreciation of the urgency of community-level intervention as a priority, as well as a keen interest in broadening the diversity of disciplines and scientists focused on the problem of health disparities nationally and globally. Dr. Taylor is a graduate of Princeton University. He's earned his MD from Harvard Medical School. He trained in internal medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he completed a cardiology fellowship at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, On this podcast, we are going to get into the results from the former players or the football players health study at Harvard and some of the results from the study of which there have been four released to date. There's more on the way, about 3,500 participants in total. One of the results seemed rather intuitive while several of them were kind of quote unquote new to me and some of the findings were jarring. But this episode is not only intended for former players, it's also designed really for anyone interested in learning more about the heart, genetic risk factors for heart disease, find out which diet a world-renowned cardiologist recommends, and get his thoughts specifically on the ketogenic diet. Alongside those topics, we learn what an ACL tear and repair have to do with heart disease. How does early life and career weight gain affect later life risk of disease regardless? This is the key word, regardless of current body weight. Yikes. And how are concussive episodes related to erectile dysfunction? What? Yeah, we're going to find out together. That's all part of this very educational episode, but do not fear. Dr. Taylor throws out actionable steps to help mitigate the risk associated with all of the results from this study and more. And be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for Nick's Nuggets, where I get my biggest takeaways from Dr. Taylor, and I cover the fourth study release, which relates a player's long-term cognitive health and mental health to the position they played and the time they played that position. And of course, if you want more information on the study or would like to participate, check out the website 
It's footballplayershealth.harvard.edu. Thank you so much in advance for the time. I sure hope you enjoy listening alongside of me. And remember, if you do enjoy this podcast, please rate it. Send me feedback to the Instagram DMs. I'm at Nick Hardwick on Instagram. And recommend it to a friend who may be interested as well. Talk to you soon, guys. Joining us today on the Finding Center podcast is Dr. Herman Taylor. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for the time. I look forward to this. Hey, thank you for the invitation, Nick. All right, tell us, how did the football players' health study at Harvard University all come together? Well, um, our study uh, came together um, in a couple of, couple of ways. One, uh, there are uh, a group of scientists who are interested in a collection of questions that are relevant to uh, players uh, at Harvard, you know, in areas of brain and um, uh, musculoskeletal, cardiovascular health and others. And there was a call for um, a look into the health of former football players uh, some years back in 2014 by the uh, NFLPA. And uh, there was a national competition for a group of scientists who could uh, show evidence that they could begin to really take a deep dive into the, the multiplicity of issues that former players face, face you know, and in their health, ranging from, of course, the uh, the brain issues, but also not leaving out the, the rest of the player, because as important as the brain is, there are uh, many other systems uh, that are um, potentially at risk. And and taking, a, taking it a step further, these different systems, you know, only we as doctors and scientists separate them into systems. They're really all part of the same individual, and they have, a, you know, they cross talk, they uh, act together. They get there gets to be a web of complex interaction that sometimes is more than the sum of its parts. And we wanted to be sure that we remember that we're talking about whole individuals, not just the brain, not just the heart, not just the knee. So um, with those considerations, we got together, and we're successful in competing for. Um, the opportunity to uh, lead this type of work. So when you're talking about the multiplicity, you're talking about those differing systems all acting as one unit? Absolutely. You know, it's artificial to think that the brain and heart uh, don't interact or that, um, you know, when you are uh, suffering from chronic pain, that that's not impacting your your ability to think and remember, um, and that the medications or the adjustments you make in response to one symptom might not affect something in a whole different part of the body. So um, taking all those types of things into consideration, the, um, the group at Harvard and with, with its uh, affiliate uh, scientists have endeavored to take a comprehensive total player approach to understanding how we can best help former players with uh, health concerns. It's quite the undertaking. What's your role in all of this? Well, I'm pleased uh, to be a part of this. Um, I am uh, a cardiologist currently at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm also an adjunct faculty member at the Harvard School of Public Health and have uh, several um, longtime acquaintances and collaborators who are working on the project in Boston. 
my um, title um, is related to player engagement education and trying to help facilitate just this type of thing where we get information out to players and the general public that's relevant to helping players live their full lives after football. How much crossover is there between the players and the general public when it comes to these findings? You know, that's a very, very good question. You know, players, um, you know, it, it almost goes without saying, are, are pretty unique individuals. Uh, they've been uh, standouts from probably very early in their lives. Um, they have been physically strong, uh, fit, and really elite, probably from when they were pre-teenagers until um, uh, they became professional players. So um, you would expect them, uh, all things being equal, to have excellent health. But uh, these uh, elite individuals are subjected to some very unusual uh, stresses and opportunities along the way. And the question becomes, um, you know, just uh, how this combination of, of risk, um, their innate resilience, their, their physical reserves, how that um, responds to the intensity of um, football exposure and what, what uh, positive things um, come of it, what negative things come of it. So while they are drawn from they are indeed a, a unique group of men um, with unique capabilities and potentially unique vulnerabilities, there's so much that we really don't know. There's so many assumptions we make about, you know, who they are and, um, and what the consequences of uh, playing a sport like football would be that it really demands that we take a close, organized, scientific, and comprehensive look at what's going on. So to date, there are four separate results returned based on questionnaires, and actually I think athletes going to Harvard and participating in some studies and there's more separate reports, I'm assuming, that are planned. So we'll start digging into these findings a little bit. So the first health and quest wellness questionnaire that came out was to help the group gain a clearer picture of our health as former players. And I thought the first results sent to players was very interesting. Past research has shown the consequences of post-career weight gain. This study showed that the potential consequences of football-related weight gain, both between high school and college ball, and then between college ball and the NFL, a little bit different results there. And this is the important part, regardless of present-day weight. Now, that, that part to me was a little bit staggering. It was a huge caveat. We'll get to that. But there's really, in this, there's four areas of concern, sleep apnea, heart disease, neurocognitive impairment, and cardiometabolic conditions. Describe to me, if you would, the difference between heart disease and the cardiometabolic conditions, because when I hear them, I think the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's a, a good question. So when we talk about heart disease, and, and in this study, we had a very specific definition. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, we're talking about some very specific things. So we're talking about heart attacks, a history of going to the hospital with an actual heart attack or myocardial infarction, as doctors like to refer to them. Um, we talk about having surgery for, for heart conditions, specifically bypass surgery for coronary uh, disease, and, or um, the placement of stents through um, 
percutaneous means, that is going in with catheters and opening up arteries and placing these stents in there to keep the arteries open. Those are very specific things. We also included stroke under this uh, particular heading for, uh, and we called it cardiovascular disease. So we're talking about real events. Now, cardiometabolic disease, um, the term um, as we're using it refers to things that sometimes people call risk factors for heart disease, like high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes, um, elevated cholesterol. So um, those are the things we're, we're, we mean when we're talking about cardiometabolic disease. Um, so that's the distinction a set of uh, factors that uh, will put you on a path to heart disease uh, or stroke. The other uh, category is the actual event. I understand. Now, here's the numbers, and these are pretty staggering. I, I feel like I'm off the charts here. So for every 10 pounds of weight gain between college football and professional football, sleep apnea risk increased by 25%, heart disease by 14%, neurocognitive impairment by 13%, and cardiometabolic conditions by 11%. And then we go from high school to college for every 10 pounds of weight gain between those two, it raises the risk of sleep apnea by 15%, and chronic pain and cardiometabolic conditions by 9%. Pretty staggering. I mean, I put on 100 pounds between college and professional football. So I have to say that last caveat, regardless of the present-day weight. So I, I made it a point when I retired, get that weight off. Everybody told me you go one of two ways. You either get really big or you're going to get small as an offensive lineman. I said, well, I'm going to get small. I'm going to get small. So it's a little alarming for me. Were you surprised yeah. at all when you heard that, that regardless of present-day weight, that if you put the weight on between high school and college and then college and professional football, that it was still going to have a, a vast impact on your health? Well, um, I, I hear what you're saying, but it, as it turns out, you know, a lot of the things we uh, experience or go through at younger ages might shift us into a uh, a higher risk category than we might otherwise be. But but that doesn't mean that uh, taking specific actions won't uh, work against that higher level of risk. So um, let's say you've gained 100 pounds over the course of your uh, post-high school football. Well, that fact stands alone, according to our observations in the study, as uh, being a risk for those outcomes like sleep apnea and uh, cardiometabolic disease, chronic pain, uh, heart disease, and so on. So that shifts you into a higher category than you would otherwise be. However, what that means and how that should be regarded is uh, sort of uh, a warning or uh, something to focus your uh, attention on reducing your risk in all the ways that we know work. Um, managing blood pressure, um, reducing weight if you're in the obese category, um, attending to cholesterol, uh, not being a couch potato. Uh, a lot of this is um, determined by your own personal behavior, but a lot of it would benefit from having a relationship with a primary care provider who can help you manage these issues. 
Um, and I, I would actually stress that last point. I think a lot of guys are incredibly self-motivated, self-starters, um, and people who have strong uh, willpower in, in many areas of life and may undertake making these changes alone. I think the best course is to remember the risk factors for those outcomes we just talked about and talk to a physician, a primary care person to begin a guided journey to lower your risk. I understand. And we'll come back to a couple of those as we get through these other two studies and and really figure out what can people do to that put on a lot of weight or do have some of these risk factors to not be so ill-fated. So the next study was one that really blew my mind. And it came back saying that those who sustained ACL tears may be at an increased risk for health problems later in life. What was the correlation between an ACL injury slash repair and the health risks? Yeah, so this this one was a bit of a surprise uh, in some aspects to us as well. I mean, it, you tear an ACL and, you know, you've disrupted uh, a joint in a major way, a major joint that's going to bear weight for the rest of your life. It has had a, a pretty significant trauma. So the fact that arthritis um, uh, was more frequently found among players that had an ACL tear, knee arthritis, was no, no big surprise. The fact that there were higher levels of joint replacement, no big surprise. Um, now, the increased risk for sleep apnea was not something that we would necessarily uh, have expected. Uh, and then the big one was the increased risk of a heart attack that apparently occurs in people who had a history of an ACL tear. Um, that is uh, a real alarm bell. Um, and, uh, and again, I think it speaks to this whole idea that, you know, a player is not just a collection of systems. These systems in an individual impact each other and are related to each other. So here we have a knee injury correlating with a heart issue. Now, the natural question, I'm sure it's your next question, is what on earth could be the connection between a, a, an ACL uh, tear and your heart? That's exactly the question. That's it. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, and, and if you'll think with me, I, I'm sure you can begin to see some possible connections. Now, we haven't proven this chain of events, but it makes sense. You know, if, if you have a knee injury, that's a weight-bearing joint, that will impact your ability to exercise. If you um, exercise less, even if it's more than, say, the average person, but comparing yourself to other other people who have similar physical history, so other football players. Yes. If you are now exercising less with your lower extremities, though that type of aerobic exercise that you can do with that, then there's a good chance that you may um, be, of course, a little more sedentary. You may increase your weight rather than being very as effective as the next football player at reducing your weight, right? Um, you may in also, um, uh, uh, besides gaining weight, 
the fact that you're not as physically active in and of itself also impacts your risk for heart disease. Um, if those two things are happening, increased sedentary lifestyle, decreased exercise, even if it's a minor shift from where you would otherwise be, that could increase your risk for heart issues down the road. So what it is, what it's saying to us is that we have to encourage people, especially folks who have had lower extremity injuries, to be physically active as well as to consult with their doctor to be sure they don't also have other major risk factors like high blood pressure. If you exercise less, your blood pressure will go up. Uh, elevated cholesterol. If you're not moving around, if you're sitting around a lot, there's a good chance that your cholesterol uh, indices may slip out of control. And so these things uh, together could begin to explain the connection between a knee and the heart. Finally, it's been shown that um, heart disease, the kind of uh, blood vessel of the heart disease that leads to heart attack, that inflammation is an important component of the blockage of those arteries that lead to heart attacks. Inflammation of the knee is arthritis. An arthritic knee may, and I underline may, be related to heart disease by way of inflammatory processes, inflammatory molecules that circulate. They don't stay in one place. Again, it's one body. And, in, and that may increase the risk for uh, heart problems. So you can think through pathways that may lead directly from the knee to the heart. All right, so there's a couple of things that keep coming up that we're going to circle back to. Manage blood, manage blood pressure, reduce cholesterol, and then manage inflammation as we're talking about arthritis. It, I know this study was specifically geared towards the ACL. Are, would you imagine, I mean, just kind of intuitively thinking about this, if we're talking about the ACL and we're talking about arthritis, also lower extremities, feet, ankles, hips, all of those kind of play into this same outcome? You know, I think it's an excellent hypothesis. Now, we haven't specifically investigated that, but I would not be surprised at all if we found uh, similar uh, types of trends in the data um, that we found with the ACL and the heart. All right, so if these last two studies didn't get you, the third one's going to floor you. After analysis of 3,400 former players indicates that con concussions and conditions that disproportionately affect former NFL players may have adverse effects on sexual health, including erectile dysfunction and hormone dysfunction. How does this all work? Yeah, this is another um, uh, really interesting and, and potentially complex discussion, but I'll try to try to break it down. Um, first, it should be said that there are a lot of things that can affect uh, erectile dysfunction from uh, pain to uh, cardiovascular issues to psychology. All of those things, uh, your mental health, all of these things can come into play. However, this study showed a very strong relationship between the uh, experience of concussion symptoms, uh, and the con you know that, that uh, assortment of con concussion systems that ranges 
from nausea and dizziness to loss of consciousness to uh, problems with memory and attention, um, to look at that cluster of symptoms that suggest that a person has had concussions uh, while playing and uh, low testosterone and erectile dysfunction. So what could be the connection? Well, um, erectile dysfunction, as I said, could potentially have a multitude of contributing uh, factors, but you need testosterone. And the connection between testosterone and uh, head injuries or concussions may go through the pituitary gland, the master gland. One of the functions of the pituitary gland, which sits right at the base of the brain, one of its functions is to secrete testosterone. If that gland is injured, its blood supply or its um, uh, nerve input is injured, then that can compromise testosterone levels because the pituitary begins to um, underfunction. It doesn't release as much uh, of the um, hormones for various body functions that it should. In particular, in this, in this study, we were concerned about its release of testosterone. So there is a physical potential connection between the experience of um, concussions and, um, and brain trauma to the release of testosterone, which can manifest as erectile dysfunction. So based on former football players obviously beating their head against one another and the physical based issues and the change in the brain that may lead to a lower testosterone output from the pituitary gland. Would you say that, that former players and I guess, you know, combat veterans as well and anybody involved in like contact type sports who may have experienced concussions may want to go check with their doctor and say, Hey, where are my testosterone levels? Where are my male hormone levels? As it, as it relates to kind of general population, and that may be an area where, say, even at 30, 35, 40 years old, that while it's earlier than general population, heading down the testosterone replacement therapy path, that may be a path that is uh, that you would maybe advise towards? Well, you know, the, you, you raise some really important considerations. I think this is, again, you know, we keep coming back to this, uh, complex web of interactions, you know, I mean, you don't necessarily think that um, a concussion would somehow be related to erectile dysfunction. But uh, there have been studies to suggest as much. So uh, the studies in the past have been small, sometimes relating uh, single uh, head injuries to um, uh, erectile dysfunction. There have been studies in boxers that have considered that the, the trauma of boxing has led to early erectile dysfunction through the pathway of low testosterone. And there have been studies in uh, soldiers who uh, experienced blast injuries uh, as having higher, higher rates of uh, erectile dysfunction than others. I think, again, we go back to an evaluation by a physician who can, in fact, look at the question of whether or not your 
experience with erectile dysfunction is tied to low testosterone. As I said, cardiovascular issues, psychological issues, other things can be the root cause. However, um, it would be uh, really a, a major oversight to look past the possibility of low testosterone in somebody who's experienced concussions in the past. So it is an important consideration and something to bring up with your doctor among the other list of possibilities if um, your sexual health is not what you want it to be. So I've heard both sides of this argument when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, and I think a lot of it is like performance and recovery now versus long-term health risk. As it relates to your area of specialty, the cardiology and the heart, what does the science tell us about testosterone and its use to help combat those neurocognitive issues and the sexual health issues men may be facing, but as it relates to kind of the the long-term health risk, if you do have to go on it earlier than maybe would be advised for the general population? Okay, it's, uh, it's a, another great question, Nick. Um, you know, all of these decisions are major decisions, and you have to do the best you can with the knowledge that's available to your doctor and the, the scientists working on these issues um, to factor into a long-term decision. There's been some back and forth about the level of risk that uh, testosterone replacement therapy for men uh, imparts. Um, there have been studies that suggest that uh, for people with low, men with low testosterone, replacing the testosterone actually uh, improves their, uh, not only the reasons that they got the testosterone specifically, but improves their cardiovascular health. There are other studies that are neutral. Um, a recent um, uh, survey of, I, I think, over 30 different studies combined uh, came up with the conclusion that it's, um, it's not harmful. That is, if you have low uh, testosterone to go on replacement therapy. The important caveat, though, uh, is that almost all of the studies that were done were less than three years, studies for less than three years. So there's still um, some unknowns about, um, you know, being on therapy, therapy uh, excuse me, therapy replacement, as you say, uh, starting young and going for years and years. Um, the court is, you know, we have to say that the court is still out on that, although uh, at, at the present time, certainly for the short term, it appears to be a safe thing um, up to around that three-year mark. Um, I would stay tuned on that research um, and see what develops, but there's clearly more research that needs to be done. Yeah, that's interesting because after the three-year mark, then it kind of turns into theories more so than actual science. So we got a lot of women listeners out there as well, and I'm sure some of them would be interested in or are currently on hormone therapy as well. Are their findings different from the men when it comes to hormonal levels in their body and the heart disease? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, replacement of hormones in women, also, um, that is um, an area that has to be approached with, um, with reflection. With, uh, there's no knee-jerk answer. Um, the, uh, the very earliest results uh, all said, oh, yeah, let's uh, replace all women who are going through menopause with hormone, uh, hormone replacement therapy. Um, and some of those early results showed that um, uh, some women had increased risk 
particularly in the early years, for uh, replacement of some of those uh, hormones that uh, had dropped um, to low levels because of menopause and or uh, after surgery. That led to um, long-term studies which gave us a better view of uh, how women who um, do not have that early hazard uh, can do reasonably well on longer-term therapy with the right drug combination. These are individualized, and let me under, underscore this, individualized decisions that need to be reached between the doctor and the patient, taking into consideration their entire health outlook. Um, so a, a blanket recommendation um, from me or anyone else would uh, not do justice to the complexity of the question. Yeah, I totally understand that. So we're going to shelf talks from this fourth report that came out, which is concussions, playing experience, and long-term health for my post-show wrap-up. I think a lot of it is really intuitive. But an area of specialty for you has turned to preventative practices. You mentioned being a part of the Harvard School of Public Health. So I want to head there for a couple of moments and, and touch on those preventative practices for folks out there listening who aren't a former football player and who didn't make it a living using their body as their tool. So I know I'm a guy with a bad family history of heart disease, just got off the phone with a cousin who's really concerned about this as well. And my grandfather on my mother's side had a massive heart attack at 53, passed away. Grandmother on my dad's side had a quadruple bypass in 87, has had multiple strokes, multiple cardiac episodes requiring invasive procedures to keep her going at 90 years old. And my grandfather on that same side had multiple heart attacks. He since passed away. My father just several years ago had an aortic aneurysm repair performed. And I, I guess the question out of that for me and for people like me is what percentage would you say you, of cardiovascular health is a result of genetics and how much is a result of health and lifestyle? Uh, this is, uh, again, Nick, all your questions have been uh, tremendous. This is another one. Um, we have to uh, consider genetics as an important aspect of cardiovascular risk, but it, it's only one, right? Um, a lot of people um, put it this way. They say um, you can think of genetics as cocking the gun, but it's environment that pulls the trigger. Wow. So while you may have uh, a strong family history, that is not necessarily your destiny. There are things that can be done uh, in terms of your behavior, environment, diet, uh, medications that can significantly modify your risk and maybe, um, uh, you know, just put off or, or actually deny the development of cardiovascular um, uh, disease or problems over your lifetime. So, yes, uh, think of uh, the family history as that early warning signal. So um, while you uh, may, and as, as we advance in genetics and, and genomics, epigenetics and so forth, we'll get more and more precise about what we can recommend to given individuals. But while that's developing, use that family history as, um, first of all, uh, something to focus you on that possibility and then motivate you 
to make adjustments in your lifestyle that would that would stack the odds in your favor and against cardiovascular disease. Yeah, I love that. And it's like if you know you've got a weakness, you should work on building that weakness up. Exactly. That's exactly the, the, the right approach, the right attitude. So when it comes to diet and lifestyle, can you give us some general recommendations to people out there to help mitigate their health risk or their specifically as it relates to the heart? Sure. Um, you know, um, so there are many aspects to lifestyle. So um, let's start with um, that relationship with a physician. Um, and I, I stress that because too many people um, uh, put that off or, or don't attend to that. And I think uh, football players like the rest of the population, need to be aware of the fact that it's heart disease that kills most of us, right? Cancer is a close second, but it's still, heart disease is still number one. So dealing with heart disease risk is really important, and, and doctors and other primary care uh, physicians can um, really help, um, help, you, help guide you uh, through this um, and some of the individual considerations. But um, I put at the top of the list, um, diet. Okay. Uh, there are many diets out there. I think, um, um, to go into specific nutritional recommendations might be beyond the scope here, but I, I really put a lot of faith in diets that help not only manage things like cholesterol, but also keep blood pressure down because blood pressure is an incredibly important risk factor. So uh, there's a, uh, an eating plan called DASH, uh, that's Dietary Approaches to Stop High Blood Pressure. But that particular eating plan, I think, and it has a, a several varieties that have features of the Mediterranean diet, of uh, uh, low salt, and so forth. That eating plan is a nice starting point for people who are searching for guidance in how they should eat. I know, I know, um, go ahead, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt this. No, no, no. Uh, I'm going to be a little predictable here and say exercise. Now, we talked earlier about how impairments in the lower extremities might encourage us not to exercise. To generalize that a little bit, uh, we all need to focus on trying to get that minimum of 30 minutes five times a week. Um, you'll hear different recommendations, but that's still a reasonable target for the average American, other people may go longer, go harder, um, depending on their, their uh, capabilities and inclinations, but exercise is great. And the flip side is um, avoiding too much sitting down. Uh, you know, um, being sedentary by itself is an additional risk. So the answer isn't, I'm going to sit all day and then get up and exercise for 20 minutes. Uh, you know, exercising an appropriate amount of time is important, but avoiding sedentary uh, existence is also a priority. So that may mean, you know, working standing up at your desk or walking around periodically while you're at work. Avoiding those long periods of just, uh, you know, just sitting there or laying there is important. Um, the um, knowing the numbers attached to your health, like your blood sugar, your blood pressure. I've said that before. I'll say it again. Blood pressure, um, your cholesterol levels. Those things are incredibly important. Maintaining a good weight. The fact that you've lost 
uh, as much weight as I know you have. You look great. Uh, I've seen all the pictures, and we've met face-to-face as well, of course. Um, that is an important investment in your long-term health. Not only is it good for um, your heart um, and brain, ultimately, uh, it's good for muscles and joints and so forth. Um, uh, one more mention of uh, blood pressure. Blood pressure is important um, in um, your cardiovascular health, but it's exceedingly important in terms of your brain health. And, and this doesn't get enough emphasis. Yeah, this is something that I haven't heard much of. Well, you know, it is true that, and uh, increasing studies are suggesting that blood pressure that's not well controlled in middle life can predict the onset of um, cognitive decline in later life. It's something that is without symptoms, that is, blood, high blood pressure has no symptoms, so it sneaks up on you. They used to call it the silent killer, and indeed it can be, but it can also silently kill brain cells while we are either not paying attention or our blood pressure may be sort of borderline and we think, oh, you know, 150 over 90 isn't so bad. I'll just run around the block. I'll just stay fit that way and I won't pay specific attention to my blood pressure. That's a huge mistake. So, it, um, so I would emphasize, particularly the former players, that controlling their blood pressure is a very high priority um, and it could be out of control without you knowing it, please consult with your physicians in order to get that checked and under control. Can you give me a general target number that people should be shooting for? Sure. Well, ideally, it should be less than 120 over 80, right? Um, the other major cut point that we talk about a lot is, um, or used to be at least, 140 over 90. Now, I'm giving you two numbers. Most guys out there and others will know that the top number is the systolic and the bottom is the diastolic. Both are important. Um, and keeping them below their individual targets is, um, is the goal. There are many ways to manage mild blood pressure uh, with lifestyle adjustments, but very often those aren't enough and they need a little help from medications. There are um, hundreds of medications for uh, high blood pressure, and today's medications are very well tolerated by the vast majority of people. So those old worries about things like erectile dysfunction or uh, changes in mood that might be attached to uh, medications that lower your blood pressure, those are worries of the past. If there's any sign that you do not tolerate a particular medication, there's almost always an alternative to it that can be effective um, and uh, leave you without any side effects. So um, the aim then is to keep blood pressure, um, if you have high blood pressure, to try to keep it below 130 over 80. And high blood pressure um, is defined as greater than 140 over 90 by most, most people. If you can keep it below 130 over 80 while you're on treatment, then you're in good shape. If you can, through your lifestyle, exercise, all those things that I mentioned before, if you can keep it below 120 over 80, that is, that is ideal. 
And uh, you, you're in uh, very good shape if you can do that. You know, I'm a guy who does all of this, all of it right. I, I exercise as much as recommended, probably a little bit more so. I eat incredibly cr- clean, but I'm still always worried about that blood pressure because it's not, I guess it's it's not out of the range of healthy. I'm, I'm about 120 and just slightly below that, around 75, 80, somewhere on the diastolic number. Anything I can do to add anything other than the medication, like would you recommend, and I hear this a lot, is just a glass of alcohol a night or a, a glass of wine or a beer, anything you would recommend in that realm within reason that I could do to help, I guess, optimize my blood pressure? Okay, well, first of all, uh, if you're in the 120 range, congratulations. Right? <laughs> Thank you. You're doing well. Now, um, if you want to stay there or increase the odds that you'll stay there because blood pressure tends in America, blood pressure tends to go up as we age. That's not true all over the world, but certainly our American way of life seems to dictate that. But um, if you want to sort of really continue to uh, work on it, um, I look to, uh, again, the uh, principles of that DASH eating plan and what the, the main features of it really are um, not specific um, supplements or anything of that sort, but food groups. And, you know, if, if you, um, in the DASH eating plan, which was shown to be as effective as some medications in lowering uh, blood pressure, individuals who had, who stuck to an eating plan that was high in calcium and, and potassium and magnesium, and those things are readily available in fruits, you know, many fruits and vegetables. Um, high in fiber, and I think I mentioned high in calcium, low in fat. So oh, you did not you know, mention low, low in fat. Okay, low in fat. You okay, know, low fat yogurts, cheeses, and so forth. Right. Yes. Um, including things like. Nuts as also an important part of the diet. Um, those types of foods, which actually leaves you with a good bit of latitude, tend to help keep blood pressure down for people who have normal blood pressure and actually lower blood pressure in people who have high blood pressure. There are no substitutes for people who are, who are having to take two or three medications but for people on the borderline, it can often mean the difference between taking a tablet every day and living a certain lifestyle without medications. And it could either prevent the need for that or at least push it way off into the future. So, I, I, again, I'm a, a strong proponent of uh, taking a look at that DASH diet. Actually, it's called the DASH eating plan because it is not uh, necessarily a reduced calorie approach. Having said that, um, um, lower calories and avoiding things like sugary sweet beverages really has been shown to help um, lower blood pressure. So the one diet that I hear so much about now, common vernacular, is the ketogenic diet or the high-fat kind of diet plan. Are there concerns with you, a cardiologist, about the maybe the saturated fat and the cholesterol that could be elevated with that particular diet. Any concerns from you? You know, I, I am not a huge proponent of it. I, I am not going to uh, put on uh, a nutritionist 
hat here because I'm not a nutritionist. Um, however, um, anything that involves um, or uh, allows uh, a high level of saturated fats um, is something that, uh, as, as a cardiologist interested in coronary disease, I do not favor. So some of the science coming out where people like cholesterol is not of concern to folks, you're not in that camp, I'm hearing. Uh, I am not in that. <laughs> Cause are you hearing that same thing? Because I mean, I, I hear it. I mean, people can take away from whatever studies they want. Well, I guess whatever they want and put it out there as it's their own. But are you hearing that same kind of noise and what's your reaction to it? Yeah, well, um, I do hear it. And I have to tell you that I heard it, um, way back, uh, when I was beginning medical school that, um, you know, cholesterol, um, was uh, questionable uh, in terms of whether or not the cholesterol, for instance, the cholesterol we would see um, in the plaques inside of coronary arteries was just sort of a, an innocent bystander or whether it was really part of the problem. Um, I think um, there's, um, there's a, a wealth of research to suggest that um, uh, excess uh, saturated fats in the diet uh, have to be approached with uh, great, great caution, and um, I, I have not been convinced otherwise. Okay. Any supplements that you would recommend players look into with their doctor to cover their bases on some of these issues we've discussed? Yeah, I think uh, supplements, um, you know, again, there there's debate and, and often controversy. My bias um, is... Um, to eat the foods rather than um, the um, the tablets, okay. right? Um, and I go again. I go back to things like Dash. You know, there were the the secret of Dash was not that uh, there were magnesium supplements or potassium supplements or calcium supplements, but there were foods that contained those uh, those. Uh, important uh, uh, elements of a healthy diet. And, uh, and I think, again, you know, there, there are probably ways that things interact in the actual foods that we eat um, that cannot be captured by a, a tablet that's manufactured. Um, now, that's not to say uh, don't do supplements at all. It's to say that I prefer uh, the natural approach to eating uh, whole foods and um, and doing them in the in the best possible proportions to produce the best possible health. I understand. One more time, I want to circle around to this: the glass of wine at night. Any recommendations or discouragements from that? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, <clears throat> if you are doing that, there's I don't see any particular harm. Uh, in fact, as you point out, uh, elevation of the good cholesterol are associated with. Uh, uh, that glass of wine or that uh, that small drink, even even as frequently as once a night. I think we have to be careful uh, with smaller um, uh, body types that um, that they not exceed that limit. Women should not exceed that limit. Uh, if you go beyond that, you actually begin to run a greater risk of things like high blood pressure, which, as I've said earlier, can be a problem. Um, and uh, certainly excess alcohol can lead to an assortment of problems that we don't even have time to list. Right. Um, but, uh, but I would also say, if you're a non-drinker, 
Um, I am not going to recommend that you start drinking as an approach to preventing heart disease. Good. Well, I'll just continue to stay away from it then. All right. So in (laughs) in conclusion, based on these findings, is it possible to give a general prognosis of a standard football player's post-career life? Well, that's that's a big question. I don't (laughs) think there's a a simple answer. Uh, What we're seeing is that there are certain risks uh, that football players incur um, uh, by uh, playing the game. And I think that's that in and of itself is not news. I think also we are seeing in our, in our work that it's clear that football players uh, also uh, probably benefit in, in some ways from the fact that they are the elite uh, athletes that they have been over their lives. Um, and they have some uh, protections as well. I think um, every decision that a player makes along the length of his career about um, you know whether to extend their career and so on, um, you know it has to be weighted with all of the evidence that they can gather. You know uh, how many concussions have I sustained? Um, I know that one is not great having a series of them could have a potentially significant effect, not only cognitively, uh, we've talked about function of the pituitary gland, of which uh, erectile dysfunction is only one aspect of pituitary function. Um, We, um, in terms of the other issues relating to um, joint injuries and the cascading um, symptoms and problems that could occur from those, um, all those things have to be put into the scales for um, the individual physician, uh, the individual player. Um, we also see that players vary considerably. Um, one of our studies that's ongoing now is called the IPA, the Impersonal Assessment, where we're uh, seeing the range from guys who uh, uh, look totally healthy to individuals who are having a multitude of problems. Uh, they played the same game, but their outcomes have been vastly different. So for me to suggest that there is sort of one formula, you know, in terms of play for four years and, and stop or play for 10 years and stop, I can't give you that. Um, I think we're getting some early indications of uh, suggestions that need to be taken to heart by the football establishment in terms of how players are prepared, how much weight they should put on, et cetera. Those things need to get careful consideration. But many of the questions that we are answering are producing new questions that really can only be um, understood or answered by uh, a longer study, a study that not only looks at players at one point in time, but looks at their life uh, going forward. Further, and I'll stop talking after I say this, I think it's important for us to look back, to look at players who are undergoing the transition from professional play to life and consider that particular unique period in their trajectory for what it can tell us about their future prognosis. That adjustment, that series of changes that come on a player all at once have incredible implications, uh, I believe, and I think the rest of the scientists in the group believe, um, for the future of the player's health and happiness. 
So there's lots of work that remains, but we're excited about what we've uh, begun to uncover in these uh, early results. Well, we're just excited as former players that you guys are undertaking this massive project and a ton of research. Lastly, I'll, I'll ask this. What's the first step that you want players to take upon retirement? I think the first step is to get assistance in guided approaches to their health overall. Um, cardiovascular health obviously is paramount to me. I'm a cardiologist. Yes. But also, their brain health and their total body health. And I will also add that mental health and happiness are important, um, you know, and perhaps most acutely affected in those very early days and months and maybe years after leaving the game. Uh, it's an important time. It's a time of immense change and perhaps unique vulnerability. So I think at that juncture in a player's life, uh, that's the time they should reach out and get assistance from all of the resources that are made available to them and the resources that they have at their own personal command. And I, I think, uh, yeah, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Good. And we'll put a list of those resources together in the podcast notes. Dr. Taylor, that was absolutely fabulous. I learned a ton. I, I greatly appreciate your, your work, your help of the former players, and your time today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Nick. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Doc. Welcome to Nick's Nuggets, where I get my favorite takeaways from the lesson we just heard. Lots of great information today coming from Dr. Herman Taylor. want to thank him again for his time. Before we get into my real takeaways, I promised that I would lay out the four study results that were returned to those of us that were in the study. And basically, I'm paraphrasing here, former players that reported more concussion symptoms during their NFL playing careers were significantly more likely to report having cognitive impairment, depression, and anxiety. Running backs, linebackers, and special teams players were over twice as likely to report having cognitive impairment as kickers, punters, and quarterbacks. No kidding. Kickers and punters don't really get touched, and quarterbacks are now the most protected position in football outside of kickers, punters, and I have to throw long snappers in there too. And the other positions, the running backs, the linebackers, and the special teamers were 40% more likely to report depression. Now, wide receivers, DBs, linemen, and tight ends, we were kind of the middle group, we, linemen, centers, and were 70% more likely to report cognitive impairment and 40% more likely to report depression compared to punters, kickers, and quarterbacks. And this, this is kind of compounding for every five years of play, the risk of cognitive impairment goes up by 20% and depression rises by 9%. Now, that all seems kind of intuitive, right? The more violent positions suffer the most cognitive impairment and depression risk now and potentially in the future. And the longer you expose yourself to risk, as with any risk, the greater chance that you face down the line of harm. That's fairly straightforward. What really needs to be said, though, is even the individuals, and this is kind of the fine print with the study, even the individuals in the highest risk positions who played for seven years and greater, which is that highest risk years category, the percentage of men who reported cognitive impairment 
did not exceed 16%. We're going to wrap all that together in just a few. Things that stood out to me that Dr. Taylor and I specifically spoke on, and no pun intended, was erectile dysfunction as it relates to the number of concussions a player reported during his career. Now, this not only affects football players, but anybody who's really received a concussion or suffered a traumatic brain injury in the past. So as Dr. Taylor pointed out, there are several factors, including heart health, psychological factors, sleep apnea, and low testosterone that could be associated with ED. Now, I'm no doctor, but I talk to a lot of smart people and smart doctor friends of mine. The one thing that could be a cause of some of the ED issues, as laid out in the football player's health study at Harvard, was low testosterone caused by damage to the pituitary gland, which is a small gland located at the base of the brain, which is in charge of controlling testosterone production in the testes. All right, go ahead and get your laugh out. It may be, but seriously, it it may be worth going to look into further with your medical provider if this is an issue that you do face. So as it comes to the pituitary gland, there are some that believe that the pituitary stock, which then releases the hormones down to the testes, which signals to the testosterone to then produce and shoot off into the body. Some believe, and I'm sure it's true, that the pituitary actually can get severed. Very limiting when it comes to then further testosterone in the body. So if that's an issue with you, definitely go look into it with your medical provider. And this stood out to me too. Dr. Taylor, he was very clearly against the ketogenic diet. As a cardiologist, he couldn't recommend a diet and a lifestyle which could include high levels of saturated fat. Remember, heart disease is the number one killer in America. And here are some numbers from the CDC. If you're thinking about the ketogenic diet, think about heart disease and think about your family and maybe some genetic risk factors. I told Dr. Taylor about mine. That is a concern in the Hardwick family. So about 610,000 people die of heart disease in the U.S. every year. That's one in every four deaths as a result of heart disease. It's a leading cause in death for both men and women. And of those 610,000, 525,000 are a first heart attack. 210,000 happen in people who have already had a heart attack. So when adopting any type of diet or lifestyle, don't lose sight of the forest really for the sake of the trees. So all that said, in my opinion, the ketogenic diet can be a very effective tool for weight loss and has been around for fat loss for decades for that reason. It helps keep insulin low, blood glucose and muscle glycogen levels also remain low, which then allows the body to burn its secondarily desired source of energy, which is body fat. So everybody is different. Every genetic code is different. Some people like me, as you heard in the podcast, have that high genetic risk factor for disease. So if that is a major concern to you too, maybe heed warning as well. Another area which was kind of wild to hear coming out of the study for me was that playing weight gain from high school to college and then from college to pros put us at a higher risk for later life disease, including sleep apnea, heart disease, neurocognitive impairment, and cardiometabolic conditions. Now, I'm sure a lot of work still remains to make the connection between the early weight gain and later life disease as this is the first study to show that play-related weight gain might be harmful down the line. So we all kind of got to stay tuned to what was causing or what is causing that. But I guess, you know, to throw out theories as we were as athletes working to get bigger and stronger and faster, have to remember the heart is also a muscle as well. So you're also making that 
bigger and stronger and able to pump more blood, which may be detrimental down the line. Maybe keyword there. Again, I'm I'm no doctor. So I guess for me, the bottom line is this. Like Dr. Taylor says, your genetics, they load the gun. Your lifestyle, it pulls the trigger. So regardless if you play in the NFL or not, finding ways to minimize the effects of the damage that just living life to this point has caused, or for some of us fighting against whatever genetic predispositions we have, it's really on us to fight back and to ensure that we aren't the ones pulling that trigger on our own lives. Eat good whole foods, exercise daily, stay active, and find ways to reduce your stress so we can just keep on enjoying this wonderful experience. As a disclaimer, none of what I said or was said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. Please see your medical professional if you are concerned that any of the topics we covered may affect you. And please see a doctor before starting any new diet, exercise, or treatment plan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, guys. Thank you for listening to the Believe Network. If you liked this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Believe.com and follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like us on Facebook. That's B-L-E-A-V. Do you believe?